When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. Thanks for listening to The Family Brain. My name is Megan Gibson, and I am the host of The Family Brain. Right now, I am recording a series on parenting and helping teen brains thrive and it's a little bit selfishly motivated. I have some teenagers on the way. My children are not quite there yet, but I feel like this is helping me sort of prepare myself for some of the changes that are coming. And it's a lot of it is really reassuring. I feel like there's so much information out there about the things we need to worry about, whether it be TikTok or vaping or um, sexual behavior or um, bullying. I, I, I feel like there's a lot of messages and not that those things aren't real. They are. And they're things for us to all be aware of. But I'm really hoping to make sure that I hang on to that thread of hope because otherwise it's just a bleak situation. And we I feel like we have enough of that. So I'm trying to sort of Make sure we have information that is encouraging as well and things that help us make stronger relationships with our kids and um, keep us working towards connection. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Today I'll be talking with Sarah Sarkis, and she is a psychologist in Hawaii. So I was talking to her when my kids were running in and out the door, and (laughs) so it was the middle of the day for her and kind of that crazy time for me. But we got it done, and she is just so smart and has so many good insights about parenting, and I find her her knowledge about the brain in general and the way she talks about the science behind human functioning is just really encouraging and helps kind of get back to basics in some of, I I feel like sometimes we can get so caught up in, you know, all these different things that we read about, about teens that I liked how she brings it back to the basics about here is the brain and this is what it's doing at this time. Here's what it's capable of and here's what it's not capable of and what, here's where, what it's working on. Um, So I hope you enjoy this episode of The Family Brain. Thank you so much for talking to me again. 
This is, uh, I know, I feel like you're my celebrity expert here on all topics. Oh, well, I'm just honored to be invited back. Well, good. It's fun to be able to see your face too. I know. I guess nobody can see that in the podcast, but you know. That's okay. It helps us. Yes, it does. It helps with digital connection, which we'll also cover today. Yes. So this series is about teenagers and just, I mean, so in my last episode, I was talking a little bit about how I had always thought this was like something far off for me. And now all of a sudden I have this sixth grader and I'm like, okay, here we go. You know, I mean, he's not quite a teenager yet, but there's just a lot of this, like sort of the groundwork for all these things I've heard about that I thought were way off in the distance. Um, But so this series is about teenagers and what we can do to help prepare ourselves as parents and support them through the changes that they're going to go through. Um, and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about sort of your practice and do you see teenagers? Is that a part of your practice? Yeah. So I'm not a teenage, I I don't actually, my practice is not comprised entirely of teenagers. I used to work with adolescents and adults. Now I work, uh, with adults and families, uh, professionals, et cetera. But, um, I also have a latency age child. That's what a sixth grader is called in shrink land. Um, And you're right, it is the ramp up. And then I just know a lot about adolescence because I want to know about human development. And these are stages that they they arise from the last one and they inform the next one. So when I'm seeing people at 18, 19, 20 and older, they're just having left adolescence. And so you have to, you know, you have to know the whole continuum. Right. Well, and what's interesting is somebody was telling me that adolescence is sometimes defined as that period of time where you're still connected to your family of origin, but and you haven't gotten that full independence from them. And that sometimes that can be well later than what we typically have thought of as adolescents, if that makes sense. Like the person who still kind of has an adolescent mindset when they're in their Yeah, you know, we talk about that, uh, that phenomenon. Actually, it's great that you brought that up. There's sort of two ways you'll see this play out in a clinical setting. One is oftentimes the the scenario that people are probably most familiar with is in family systems work. And specifically when we talk with people that are struggling with addiction, we'll often talk about where they got arrested development, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, not just a good TV show. It's a real thing. And um, what we mean by that is when did they stop growing psychologically and emotionally? And oftentimes you'll find at the period of time, in this case, in this example, where substances become a really dominant feature in their life, that they stop growing and maturing. So even though they may come into my office and be 35, they have components of their psyche and their psychology that are still very, very adolescent. So you'll see it there. And then also sometimes you'll see it. um, I've worked with people where there was extreme avoidance of the developmental milestones typical to adolescence. So sexuality, separation, boundary pushing, all those kinds of things that are very normal, typical parts of adolescence, and they'll skip them. They'll skip them entirely. So you'll see them including all sexuality and you'll see them you know, in their 20s or 30s or 40s, and they will have an adolescent quality about them because they tried to skip it. And we can't skip anything. 
I mean, unless you avoid However it. However much we wish we could, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that that was one of the things in my last episode that I really took from the woman, uh, Mary Del Harrington. She has this grown and flown. Um, oh, I was it. just looking at her stuff. She's fabulous. It's very cool, right? And it's what I love is that I feel like there's all these resources for like the baby, like, you know, 100%. The, the eat, sleep, wake, and like how to, how to swaddle. And you kind of think that if you check those boxes, you're like, just, you're good for parenting. And then it's just this lifelong thing that we don't fully prepare ourselves for. But the thing that I love that she said was that it just never ends. And we have this mentality that like, okay, they're, they're off now we're done. Yes. And I think about even my parents, I mean, there's still worry or, you know, I mean, it's just, it's a never ending thing. Um, so anyway, I love that we're getting the tools to figure out how to, not just help the teenagers, but also help ourselves as the adults and not bring our own crap into it. Yeah. I mean, an adolescence sort of has its own kind of PR rap that it's gotten. Um, and like a lot of, um, like a lot of these kinds of trends, some of it is true and some of it actually kind of doesn't bear out in the literature. Um, the, the recent literature on the children that are in our, like the generation that we're raising. Um, so that's really interesting. And, uh, that's why I love doing these podcasts because it really, it actually forces me to like think critically about a single topic. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, this was just such a joy to get to like sit and really think about how we could have an interesting conversation about it. Cause I learned so much so it's oh, gonna make good. well i'm excited great. i can't i can't wait to hear you might just have to start talking because i won't even know what to ask yeah I mean, basically i want reassurance that's my bottom line that's why i'm doing this entire series is i want reassurance that i can't really mess it up it's it's good what it's going to be is going to be um that's that's my agenda i'm just going to put yeah. that out there yeah that's hysterical um i'm glad that i was your phone a friend for that uh it's an honor um yeah, I mean, listen, generally, like usually it's usual. And the good thing about us, our type of animal, is that we're incredibly resilient. And um, while we don't fully understand why some people have a certain level of resilience and some people have either less or even more, um, we know that it's a trait that's seen throughout our whole species. So the great news is that, you know, we're, we're entirely made for bumps and bruises. Um, and adolescence, so for anybody listening, you know, it, it sort of goes from early childhood into this stage called latency age. Latency age starts around 10 and culminates at the onset of puberty. And the onset of puberty from a biologic definition would be for women, for, for girls at the age of menses, um, and for boys, like, you know, when they start to have, when they start to have like pubic hair and sexual desires and, you know, and, and for women also, um, those same physical changes happen. Right. So, um, adolescence, like the way that it has been kind of marketed and it can, it is a developmental stage that baked into the recipe is the friction of separation. 
it takes friction to sort of separate out. And you can see adolescent kids starting to do that. You can see sixth graders starting to ramp up with that, right? They get mouthier. They're pushing the boundaries even more. And adolescence has that kind of really acutely. Um, and they're getting growing independence where, an, you know, an 11-year-old doesn't have a license, right? So um, usually a lot of 11-year-olds won't kind of have like phones or they'll still have bedtimes. There's things that you're still really day in and day out managing for them. And adolescents get much more freedom. And um, there's a lot of boundary pushing. It's a period of time of experimentation. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because do you read any of the boundary stuff by Henry Cloud? Yes. So I get his emails all the time. And for a long time, I was, I, I used it more in just general relationships, but now a lot of the stuff is actually applying to kids and, and just, and he, it probably always has, maybe I just wasn't ready to like receive it that way, but just about how you can't get them to do X, Y, or Z. You can only say what you will do and what you won't do as a result. Like, so exactly. I, I can't say you have to stop talking to me like that. You just do. If you continue to talk to me like that, I'm going to leave the room and lock the door or whatever it is. But I've been, I've been appreciating the messages in my parenting because it's just, you can't pick them up and like put them somewhere anymore. Yeah, there is no more of that. We don't have the physical dominance. And if it's boys, oftentimes by that point, uh, they're larger than us. Yeah. yeah. And not that the physical dominance ever really was useful anyway, but it's almost like you kind of need a new bag of tricks with all of these changes that are occurring with the kids. But at least like when a child is two and they are wildly unregulated, Mm -hmm. you can place them in a crib and say, it's time to nap. Right. Right. So we do have a certain amount of leverage in that way. And all of that is gone um, in adolescence and lots of other great things surface, right? But the thing, um, the really interesting thing that I started discovering when I was researching this is that, you know, this generation of teenagers, the research shows that actually um, they are way, quote, better behaved than our generation was. Okay, they are postponing sex longer than us. Granted, the dynamics have changed and the boundaries around kind of um, those stereotypes, right? And we can get into that specifically later, but they're delaying sex for longer periods of time. Um, They are smoking less cigarettes. Some of that's ameliorated because the e-cigarette issue and vaping has increased, but traditional cigarette smoking has um, been gone down significantly. They are having less sex when they have it. They are binge drinking far less than our generation was. So there's a lot of hope in mm-hmm. there. And there's, you know, they're their own generation. So they are shaped by us and in reaction to us and in in and in response to tech. So, right. you know, that that research is really interesting because it makes you think about like, okay, so what's influencing that? For sure there's generational things, but also tech is a big part of it. It turns out that some of the reason that they're doing less of that is that their lives are taking place more and more and their relationships 
through tech. Right. So they're hanging out less together, but they have more constant connection via the devices. And so it's really just a period of, it's a stretch of development where you really, I think it's, it's fascinating to observe how they are being shaped by their environment right now. Right. And it is hard, you know, online bullying is a real thing that parents have to navigate. Um, The online relationship is a really ripe space around the time of latency age and late latency. So sixth and seventh grade um, leading into actual full-blown teenage years where they're exposed through the through tech to pornography. So there are a lot of pitfalls, but this does seem to be a generation of children that are making their own mark on these generational trends. And they have a lot to be proud of mm-hmm. for how they're navigating it. There's a lot so somebody, of stuff they're doing well. Somebody made the point to me too, that for so long, Without the kind of technology we have now, adults were trying to decide what teenagers wanted. So, you know, companies, businesses, and now the teenagers have it so much more in their own hands to be these like influencers and really say, this is actually what we want. Instead of having, you know, all the people in the conference room deciding what they're going to pitch as the next thing. And so it's almost like taking on, but I guess that's true for us as adults too, where we're getting more access to things through technology. I feel like the fourth fourth wall is removed, you know, it's sort of like we're being able, even like through social media and stuff, you're able now to interact with people that you used to just look at magazines about, or like, you know, we had like, we could put our own mark on something by making like a mixed tape. They just have so many more vehicles through which to express that. And they're animals, you know, the, the adolescent sapien is um, in a huge period of transition, huge, um, emotionally, psychologically, neurobiologically, cognitively, interpersonally, sexually. There isn't a single anchor that's totally solid. So you can understand why it feels so overwhelming to them. Because it's very intense. It is intense. And it's, it's, can you talk more about just what is going on in the brain when we're seeing these, these, um, this sort of erratic behavior? What can we use as a visual as, as parents to sort of um, remind ourselves, okay, this, they're not functioning on a full tank of gas here, you know, and, and, and not in a critical way, just in a way of like, just be aware there's certain things happening here and and take that into consideration. Totally. And so, yeah, their tank of gas, what, what we generally see, and there's large, you know, it's a spectrum of behavior um, and adolescent experiences on this continuum. But generally the way I would try to get parents to think about it is that your child's brain is mature in, in terms of the size it's going to be, like the physical size, but the brain measures maturity 
at this level called, we call it connectivity or integration, and their brain isn't nearly mature enough there. There aren't even regions that are communicating with each other in any robust way at this at this um, period of time. And one of the areas that's most impacted is emotional regulation, frustration tolerance, problem solving, sequencing. This is why they make stupid mistakes. Things mm-hmm. that as an adult, you think, how did you not see that coming? Right. Right. And they're, um, they're almost laughable. Like it's just, they like, are laughable. <laughs> uh huh. Well, it's especially laughable when they think they're fooling you. Right. <laughs> like, no, no, I'm like fully connected up here. Right. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it is. But this is, you know, their brain isn't, it's not the fully integrated, connected um, network of systems that it will be by the time they're, say, um, just to cover both genders, 26. Then you think about that you have pretty much all the connections you're going to have at that. I mean, you can always build new ones. The brain is incredibly plastic. It's incredibly malleable. But by the time you're 25, 26, 27, you're going to start to have a whole different set of neurologic capacities that you just didn't, even when your tank was full as an adolescent, let's say you were working, you were the type of adolescent. I remember one time we talked, your oldest born, so they can tend to be highly regulated. So a lot of times you'll see in families that the firstborn sort of follows rules. They have pretty good impulse control. They don't really rock the boat, right? They, they are very reasonable. Even that child during adolescence isn't capable of the things we wish they were capable of because it would make our life easier and it would assure us that we could get them through this stage of development without any major catastrophes that could thwart their life in a significant way. That's our fears, right? It's like, we don't mind occasional like small mistakes, but it's the big ones that we really keep us up at night. And they're just not, they don't even have the brain development for that. That level of connectivity and integration develops over the next decade. Well, and what's so interesting is I think back on my big mistakes and are just big chunks of wrong, but I say wrong direction, but those are the times when we end up, I feel like learning the most and the stuff that, I mean, I'm sure in your work, all the stuff you've gone through, the things I've gone through help you put those pieces together for the future, but it's just miserable as a parent to watch your child go through any kind of suffering or any kind of challenges, but that's, what's going to get them to be the awesome adults we want them to be. It's just, it's almost like, like you were saying before with the kids trying to bypass certain parts of development as parents, it's almost like we want to bypass that stage of development too. Do you know what I mean? And somehow, like if I could just read the right book or listen to the right podcast, I will avoid the, I mean, I put myself in this category. If I can educate myself in all the ways I will get to the end and just be like, well, I nailed that. Yeah. Just read the book I read, you know, you stuck the landing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, this really goes back to that kind of this age old, but sage wisdom. And there's increasingly like just really cool people doing this work now. Um, Dr. Haight is one of them. Jonathan Haight, I believe is his first name, but there's a bunch of people doing this, this kind of work really kind of emphasizing like 
we can't rescue our kids. We really can't. We have to let them suffer. We have to let them feel pain. We have to let them make mistakes. And it doesn't mean we're permissive, right? I mean, if they're doing things that are very unsafe, their life, and they need tighter and stricter boundaries, parents have to respond accordingly. But usually there's a lot of steps up until that point where you can be there for them and you can love them and you can support them and you can even try to guide them. But ultimately, they have to bump up against boundaries in order to know where it is, what's their range they're comfortable orbiting in. Right. And um, everybody's range is different, right? You look at different adults who are like, oh, that's fine. And I would be horrified. I mean, not just because it's so uncomfortable for me to live in that kind of, um, you know. It's a self-statement. It's not about the other person. You're saying it about your own temperament. Exactly. Like I would not be able to sleep at night if those were choices I was making. But some people, that's the only way they feel alive, you know, is by kind of being a little bit more risk-taking. And it might be tough because we might have children who are in a different orb than we are, you know? If you have more than one, like you do, um, it's very likely you will if you just play the odds, right? right? And um, yeah, everybody comes to the world sort of with a kind of a bit of a temperament. And then the environment really works and interacts with you and shapes you. And that's how we develop our kind of appetite for risk and our capacity for tolerating, feeling out of control and all these things. And then you'll see that played out in people's style of risk taking, right? So yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sure I'm one of six. I'm sure that my parents felt like they had at least one or two of us that took them to their outer edge of comfort in terms mm -hmm. of mischief and um, wrath, general rascal making. Right. And of course, all of your siblings know who those people are. You just stick it in that name. Remain nameless. Um, you know, it, it is. It's really um, the thing I've been trying to tell myself too is so whenever there's a little um, snafu in terms of Oh, I wish you hadn't done that. Or this issue comes up that we need to have a real conversation about. And again, my child is younger, but I keep saying, well, I'd rather have him learn this now and have this conversation versus when he's like 20, you know, like learn this now, because now's the time to sort of figure this out. But I would think that even, you know, I'd rather have them learn when they're 17. Like if they haven't learned it, let's learn it when you're 17 and not 27. Like whatever the issue comes up, it's clear that you haven't learned it and let's learn it now, you know? And, and I mean, same with us. I, I feel like sometimes I'm always pointing the finger at the kids, the kids, but like we're still learning our things. Like, okay, Megan, learn it now. Not when you're 57, learn it now, you know? Yeah. And everything it, that we're learning is new at the time that it's new, right? Right. Like I've never been a mother to an 11 year old. So I'm new with 11. Right. And he's new at being 11. And we're just trying to sort of co-figure that out together. But, you know, there are, um, there are things that help. So, you know, for example, this is something that sounds easier than it is. But for adolescents, um, sleep is critical. 
it's the whole movement with some schools that are opening now later in the morning in high schools. You know, they have like two tracks that one can start early, the other can start later. And I think I'd define later. I think I've seen some schools up in Northern California that open as late as 930 for adolescents is to adjust for this new uh, research coming out about brain development, adolescent brain development and sleep. Um, so nine hours is the minimum that's suggested and it does really make a difference. It can't happen all the time. We're not aiming to try to make the pursuit of something helpful, in this case sleep, a neurotic endeavor that then teaches our children to be rigid and neurotic, right? We want to mirror being very fluid, but like more nights than not, if they can get nine hours of sleep and there's, you know, I don't want to bore the audience if it's too deep into why, but there's, there's real particular reasons why. And um, one of the things that seems to happen in these last kind of three hours of sleep, and it happens especially for adolescents, is you fall into this realm of sleep where um, it's very deep and you have something called sleep spindles in the course of this. And during sleep spindles, it turns out that spindles are when the brain is doing a couple of critical things. One is it's, um, it's working on your emotional development and your psychological development during those times. It's repairing and working on that regions of the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, there's all this emotional development that's happening while they sleep. And then there's two other things, and they, they sort of are opposite sides of the same coin. One is that adolescents are consolidating what they have learned. So um, learning consolidation is happening and the brain is preparing to learn more. And so you can see when the, this, when sleep is interrupted and specifically morning sleep, those last three hours of sleep, oh, really? Okay. you can see why then they're tired in school, their memory's not as good, their focus isn't as good, they're even more moody than usual. Mm-hmm. It all makes perfect sense. So sleep, this whole catchphrase of sleep hygiene yeah. is really important. And that always dovetails with a conversation about tech, right? So every family's got to figure it out for themselves, but there's got there's to be boundaries around tech. We can't think that the same brain that has this immature, it's called a prefrontal cortex. That's where the, I referenced it earlier, the impulse control, frustration tolerance, sequencing, um, those kinds of behaviors. That's where that happens. It's in the front of our brain. And we can't expect that a brain that's operating like that will then miraculously tell itself to go to bed and stop talking on the telephone. Mm -hmm. Those are incongruent requests. You're asking a cat to bark. Mm -hmm. So we have to be the person that does it for them. And we have to do it consistently, even when they don't want us to, which if they're a typical adolescent, will be always because they have an intense drive to be close to their peer group because that's who they're starting to in a very unconscious, loose way. They're starting to realize my future is with is outside this family because I eventually am going to be my own human 
living, right? So that's the tear. No, nope. I, know. <laughs> I just started to... <laughs> incorrect. Actually, no, I just <laughs> wrong answer. I just started telling my son, I was like, well, you know, you're not going to be going to college. I'm going to um, have you live in my basement. And that's just going to be how it's going to be. That's just, and no, no offense to people who live in the basement, but like, you know, yeah. it has a certain him, but he's not going to be allowed to go. So Right. And the basement reference for anybody that's getting their knickers in a knot is just because it's a good joke. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, if your child is living in the basement. It's a hard it's time fine. economically. It makes sense. You know, it's all good. Exactly. Yes. Um, yeah. My mom used to say to me, you can have a perfectly normal life up until you decide to move out and move away from me. Yes. Um, and so that same sentiment. So I have real affection for that, but yeah, I mean, that's essentially the pull that they're feeling inside themselves. And so it is, it's such a, it's such a understandable drive that wanting to be connected to their friends is now the next most important thing because that's where they see they're headed, right? They're a blink away from college. And after that, we really do look at them as like, okay, time for you to now go function all on your own. Even though like a semester ago, I was paying your tuition and you had like, a shared credit card with us, right? right? (laughs) These aren't like smooth transitions often. Um, So yeah, I mean, sleep hygiene is critical and paired with that is really looking at your, how well are the tech boundaries working for your family? And if it's anything like my family, I have glimmers of nailing it Mm -hmm. and then long stretches of time where I think, this animal has taken over our lives. This one? <laughs> I'm doing a podcast recording, buddy. I don't usually record, but when, you know, when you're doing Hawaii, you got to make accommodations. Um, I, yeah, we just have everything Right, you should bring your whole family in. But I also think it's so healthy because the listeners get to hear that if you're out there and you're, You've been thinking for a long time that you want to do a podcast, but you think there's a perfect time to do it. This is a great example of like, no, the reality is you do it in between like carpool and soccer drop off. And sometimes this happens. Right, right. And that's how it, what's funny is that that's, I always want to write and I never write, but I do this podcast, but I always say I don't have time to write, but I do. I just got to squeeze it in the way I squeeze in other things. Um, Anyway, okay, so back on track. So sleep, technology limits. Well, and what's interesting to me is that I feel like now a lot of the technology stuff is people talking to each other. So there are some, you know, social emotional learning things happening, even when they're collaborating on some of the gaming and that kind of stuff. So it's not all bad. I think there's some growth that can happen, but but not in working your body or exercising or sleeping or whatever it is. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a very much a classic Goldilocks, right? We always want to try to have that balance, um, between depriving them of something that can be a real asset and overindulging something that can be an addiction. Right. And none of us know present company, especially, um, none of us know if what we're doing is right. That's why parenting is so like it's the greatest experiment of mankind, right? Because we don't have instruction manuals and then we, most of us sign up for it and multiple times. Um, so 
you know, each family has got to figure out those boundaries. And usually the data will be loud and clear when it's not working out. You're going to have like, you know, kids that are sneaking things or kids that are really getting themselves in trouble online or putting themselves at risk. There's a lot of danger out there online that kids need to be educated about. And mostly what I try to tell the parents that I work with that have adolescents about tech is I say this, I say, listen, we could fill in the topic, any of them, sex, sexting, first exposure to porn, um, violence, bullying, take any of the things that worry us about tech. And essentially what I always say is, so they're going to be exposed to it. Do you want to be the first person to talk to them about it? Or would you like the stranger on the other end or the friend, by the way, mm-hmm. that's called a peer, so same brain development, to be the one? And that is usually a good gauge of how to try to stay a shoulder length ahead of any of the risks that they might be exposed to. You know, like at our kids that are fit, I have a fifth grader, you have a sixth grader, like, I urge the parents that now is the time to start talking to them about these topics. Right. If you have a younger child that for either your own family cultural reasons, like personal culture, or for reasons that are about, you know, maybe they, you have a two parent household, parents don't live together, they have phones much earlier, um, then I would start earlier because the phone is the number one portal to all this stuff. And we can't expect them to be regulated around it. And here's the other thing that's really awesome about adolescents. They're incredibly curious. So whatever they're interested in, they're going to find answers. Mm -hmm. And all we had was like an encyclopedia. Like, seriously, that's how we looked up our stuff or you could go to the library gym teacher talk to you about reproductive stuff i mean not in my catholic school they didn't talk about anything (laughs) (laughs) they just said don't do it (laughs) yeah yeah oh my gosh but no you know you're right it's and so that's the thing i feel like in all the people i've been talking to for the podcast that's the biggest thing i feel like without i think i thought when i was looking into just topics in general in terms of parenting is like there would be some specific recipe or like here do it this way but it's the conversation and the communication that's the key part is like what are you thinking about this and how will you know if it's too much because I'm not going to always be standing there if you're looking at something that's not okay or and I actually read this article today or my kids are always making fun of me that I'm always reading articles but um that just talked about like helping your kid check in with their gut. Like, what does your gut tell you? I mean, we all have that little feeling of like, Ooh, this is not okay. And we, we deny it too much, you know? And so like helping your kids get in touch with that feeling of like, Ooh, this is really great. I really like this. Or I'm not sure about this. Or Ooh, this is really bad, you know? And just kind of having conversations about, well, what's your tell? Like, how do you know that this is not a good situation for you or something you shouldn't be doing or a person you might not want to be choosing to be with. Um, And I thought that was really good advice because that's the thing you could take with you everywhere. It's not like you have to have this handbook. And you possess it. It is inside of you. And so that's incredibly valuable. Um, And 
the other thing that you're modeling there that's really good that may go unnoticed because the way you're saying it is just so matter-of-factly is that um, to ask them questions, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, what do you think your tell is? Mm-hmm. Hey, um, I learned this was something during my training and in my years in the therapy office that's been really helpful is like um, there's power in the group also. So if you have a adolescent who has a close group of friends let them be in your house, be around, Mm -hmm. around. You can't overestimate how much just being around to actually listen more than talk to them, Mm -hmm. just to listen and hear like, what are the kinds of things that they're talking about? How do they, what are the things they're doing when they don't have anything to do. It's not well, in the car. It's ridiculous. Cause they, it's almost like you're invisible. I just drove three boys home from school and I'm like, am I a ghost? Because they're just saying, what if I ask them the specific question, no one will tell me anything, but I'm just sitting there listening. Like I'm an invisible human. And I loved it. I need to do that more. It was great. Yeah. And the more you generate the adolescent, the child themselves coming up with the problem solving, the better. Um, they're more engaged. They feel more empowered. A lot of the struggle that we have with adolescents, um, a lot of the friction is centered on control. They want control. They feel the the adolescent brain thinks it knows best. Mm -hmm. That sort of culminates in our twenties with like an early twenties. You'll see with early twenties people, there's often sort of a righteousness. These are really developmentally typical aspects of our brain and they're really important for the stage that you have them the more that you can engage the adolescent to do what it's naturally inclined to do which is want to have a say mm-hmm. by the way they want to have the last say right uh, so, I, so i get it <laughs> yeah i do too and i'm 44 so it's like oh, has a, they never got that out of me yet right um but yeah, and they so they want to have control. They want to have they want to have say over how their life is, and they want a certain amount of freedom. It is less than we think. By the way, it's less than they think. Mm. They don't actually want us to just be absent. And adolescents are still young enough that they will come to you when they're really in trouble. Now, you'll lose that in their 20s. They'll often just go to their peer group. Mm-hmm. Um, but in your adolescence, you still return to the nest right. when you're, if you have one that right. feels safe enough. Right. You'll go back to the nest to lick your wounds. And those are all like just critical opportunities to reassure the child that this is that it's okay and that yes there will be whatever's gone on right yes there will be consequences there is um but we love you and we'll figure this out right well it's interesting because I almost feel like all of a sudden just with this most recent shift for my oldest it feels like being in school and going from like learning it in a book to now you're in your like practicum or like okay and and now you tried this and you're coming and and you know he's always been in the world, but it just seems like a lot of these issues that we've been always planting the seeds for now are, it's like harvest time and sort of seeing what's coming out of the the things. And it just, I guess it's surprising me because it's happening more quickly than 
I anticipated. I think you start to feel like, oh, I have all this time. And all of a sudden you're like, the time is here. And I'm, I'm guessing that's not a unique feeling that people have. All of a sudden you're parenting this older person and you're like, now what? Now what do we do? I know. It's like all of a sudden there's just a preteen. And um, I forget who says this, um, but somebody had this fabulous line that there's sort of nobody's found a good cure for seventh grade yet. Oh, right. So, you know, sixth, seventh grade, middle school, I have a close friend here who calls it, she had, you know, a lot, she has a big family mm-hmm. and she's, and they're all sort of older now. And she says, oh yeah, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, they're in the tunnel. She's like, it's, they're in the tunnel on their way to adolescence. Okay. Um, and it's a particularly like, jarring period of time because prior to this they really were little kids and now they're right in between yeah kind of both you know so and and then you start to see all the physical changes you know boys will get wider jaws and a broader chest and they'll start to have leg hair and you know you can really tell that their body is um it's in metamorphosis right So what are some of the biggest, I know this is one of the things we wanted to talk about was just the biggest differences between sort of, I mean, this could probably be its own whole episode, but just for boys versus girls. And what are some of the things that you're seeing and hearing about that are particularly challenging for boys versus girls? That's a great question. Um, I'll say this. Most of what I'm saying applies to everybody, Mm -hmm. right? Almost everything I've said applies to everybody. There's nothing unique or gender specific, but I'll I'll tell you where you see most profoundly differences between boys and girls, and it tends to be things that are socially engineered. So the way one of the ways is um, the ways that boys process emotions versus girls, and they're not. Neither is good or bad. They just are. And they both have positives and they both have negatives. Um, So what I see is that um, boys will let's say um, an interpersonal injury happens, right? And we, anybody can define that any way they want. Uh, There was gossip going around or there was some sort of something in their peer group, right? Um, a girl experiences it and a boy experiences it. So the boy is more likely to use distraction to process it. So he will play a video game, go shoot some hoops, go skateboarding, listen to music, and then kind of like move on, right? Very little verbal processing that you'll see there. You might Occasionally with a boy, you might get a disjointed expression of it later at bedtime and they just sort of blurt it out and you can tell they're like fighting back tears. Mm -hmm. But there's not a lot of like going on about it. Girls will actually do a lot of verbal processing. They'll talk to their friends about it. Certain girls will talk to their mother about it. They may talk to a sister about it, but they're going to talk, 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 talk. So The upside of the boy expression is they're moving on. Mm 
And it's why I think girls get the rap of being mean girls because this thing can take on a life of its own mm. and so keep going for weeks and weeks and weeks. Whereas a boy, it's like the next morning, they're like, hey, you want to go shoot hoops? And they're right. like, yeah, right? right? Or let's go play chess or whatever parallel play they're going to do together. They're going to go do it together. Um, so, you know, you can see that there's an upside to that. The downside is that these boys are for the most part, and Michael Thompson has done a great job of really bringing light to this topic in his books, um, is that these are boys who are, um, they're learning to not feel their feelings. And then they become men that if you're heterosexual, as a girl, you're going to like, you know, I, I was looking to marry a man. So, but they're going to grow up and they're going to be in partnerships whether it's with a man or a woman, where the partner is going to want emotional um, connection. Mm -hmm. And yet then we look at them and say, well, why can't you communicate about your feelings? And he's thinking to himself, whether it's conscious or unconscious, because I'm doing what boys do. Mm -hmm. I've been doing this since I was pubescent. Right. So there's that downside, right? For the girl, you think, gosh, she's got this big network of people and she's able to process and she's able to but, 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 right? And that is great. The, the, the capacity that women have to um, emotionally and verbally connect is something that can be really beautiful. Like mm -hmm. we're doing it right now, yeah. right? It's great. The downside is that they can get in a habit of just hanging on to something. Mm -hmm. And that's where you can see sometimes where it's like, you think like, oh, they're holding grudges and they're this and they're that. I mean, they can like over processing things to minute details. And I've seen this even in parenting, like processing things that happen with the kids. And, and, and I, I mean, I kind of like doing that, but you can see how it could be unhealthy at a certain point. You really can, right? Just I mean, you're alive longer than necessary. Like the yeah. ball is dead. It's out of play. Let's just, you know, blow the whistle and start again. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? That's a perfect way to say it. Like helping in this scenario, you know, helping if you see a daughter kind of going down this over-processing spiral um, of helping her to reset. And like right. framing it that way, like, you know, I learned way too late in life that I could actually just sort of like blow the whistle and reset. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you could say I learned it from dad, like mm -hmm. dad's really taught me how to blow the whistle and reset. Right. And it's certainly something I've learned from my husband is like, yeah. I've learned so much from him about just kind of like, like whether or not you obsess on this. It's going to be what it's going to be. Right. We've covered the basics. Let's move on. Right. Yes. And there is. So like, I've learned from that. I don't like it when it happens, but I have learned from it. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> Noted. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think there's a lot. And then, you know, there's a lot of stuff that kids are exposed to now um, with tech that I think with good open communication about and then using the tech to our advantage with blocks and things like that. I think we can sort of jump from lily pad to lily pad, but it'll piss them off. I mean, they right. want full access and right. make no mistake about it. Teenagers are, they are marketing 
geniuses. So the child, the one child in the whole high school who has the loosest parameters of tech is going to be the bar by which you are measured. Right. It's not the dozens and dozens and dozens who also have moderate or even more stringent um, rules and regulations. Right. You're always, we're always as the parent going to be held to like the, you know, the outlier basically. Right. And well, and that's so, where I think the gut helps me too, is just like checking in with my gut of like, and sometimes I notice my gut and I still let them, them do things that, and then eventually I'm like, no, no, pay attention. This is, this is feeling something's off, you know? Um, and it's helping me kind of navigate. I can't think about what that other person's doing. I need to think about who my child is, what our family is and what I feel comfortable with. But it's, it's hard because you kind of want to just match up with what everybody else is doing because it's just easier sometimes. Yeah, I had a really interesting experience as an adolescent that I, I, haven't, I hadn't thought about it until you used the word intuition. But um, I, when I was an adolescent, I had this experience where I had said I was going to go to something with a bunch of friends. And at the time, I didn't know it to be any other feeling other than all of a sudden I didn't want to go. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't somebody that struggled with like social avoidance or social anxiety at all. So I can understand if parents are like, yeah, but my kid has that feeling all the time. This is for a different type of kid. Mm-hmm. Right? This is for your child that um, is sort of very comfortable socially and um, not really like avoidance wasn't my thing, right? Mm-hmm. So I have this experience. All of a sudden, I don't want to go. And I say something to my mother. I say something like, she's like, oh, yeah, you're going to go. And what time are you going to be home tonight? And I was like, I don't know that I'm going to go. And she was like, oh, really? Um, And I said, yeah, I don't know why. I just don't want to go. And I can see now me as a, you know, middle-aged mom, I can see how like in that moment it would have been totally understandable if she just said, oh, go, honey, you're going to have fun. Mm -hmm. She didn't. She said to me, um, she said, you know, intuition comes to us in lots of different ways. So if you feel like you really don't want to go and you, it's just nagging, don't, or is it that you don't want to like drive with your friend, whatever it is, like we can remedy that, right? I end up not going. And it turns out that that evening was a a night that was sort of um, path changing for a friend of mine, Mm -hmm. um, whom I would have been with. Mm. And that always stuck with me because she let me have the feeling. Right. And you remember it now. I mean, a hundred percent of all the things, you know, it would have been life changing. I would have been thrown out of Georgetown. Yeah. Um, it was my, the summer between my freshman and my sophomore year, I would have been, so I was 18. Um, I would have been thrown out of Georgetown and you know, I, I'm, I have faith that I would have righted the ship, but it certainly would have added a layer of complication. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it was something that I knew even then I knew, like when I woke up the next day and said to my mom, Oh my God, I'm so glad I didn't go listen to what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, she was just like, yeah, that's how powerful intuition can be. Yeah. So you're right. That's a really good example. Yeah, it's a good, um, it's 
a really good strategy that you your strategy is the best of all the strategies and it's a long-term project Mm -hmm. think about it as from you know right now to when they leave for college but really helping them like don't rescue them from their feelings let them sit in them even when they're uncomfortable because they have messages for them Mm -hmm. that can be um sort of you know warnings and indications no i love that and again, it goes, I mean, it goes very much against my type A-ness, my type A-ness in recovery, but I believe it wholeheartedly. So it's like, I know it to be true and I kind of have to continually remind myself. Otherwise I just, you know, get on the train of like fix and hover and, you know, all of it. Um, I um, am wondering, is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you were hoping you could share? I feel like this is a huge territory, but I feel like we've covered a lot of good stuff. We've covered a lot. Yeah, I mean, listen, we could we could pick this apart forever. Right. Um, As women like to do, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. We could triple this length. Yes, yes. Easy, easy. Um, but no, I mean, this is great. And I think if people, in terms of your initial reassurance, I mean, my experience has been in the clinical practice is that um, even when it's really thorny, And it can get really contentious in adolescence. Most of the time, kids are okay. And we have to stop measuring okay by by being either perfect or, you know, getting certain grades or getting into a certain school or playing a certain sport or that they, you know, these measures, they're going to mess up and they're they're inherently going to do stupid things and be adolescents. They're going to do what that animal does. But most of the time, if you're around more nights than not, you're, you have as open a communication as is developmentally reasonable for where your child is at, and you're not avoiding any topics because they make you uncomfortable, then kids are going to be all right. I love it. I, I'm going to hold on to that. And this generation really is, a, it, they are proving to be, um, they're not without their own foibles and culture, kind of generational um, proclivities, but they're finding their way mm. in a world yeah. that we never had to navigate. And could have never even predicted we would have to navigate the crazy things that, I mean, the Jetson-like, I mean, the fact that we're even talking right now and you're in Hawaii and I'm- We're in a sci-fi novel. Yes, right. It's insane. It's insane. So they're very well equipped to do what they're doing because they're adolescents. And even when they drive us insane, they are supposed to. That is what their animal, that age group is driving them to do. Right. So my last question for you is if you could go back in time and tell your teenage self something- that you think would, I mean, and I think you're, it, this kind of goes against what you were saying about the recipe and it's part of the deal. But if there was one little nugget you could pass to your teenage self, what would it be? That's such a great question. Um, I would probably tell my adolescent self to be gentle, like be gentle with yourself. Like don't waste so many years 
being hard on yourself Mm -hmm. in the way that I found myself, right? I probably would have tried to reassure her that that really wasn't going to move the needle very much. Mm -hmm. That kind of an outstretched palm would do a lot more than like a wagging finger. Yes. Um, That's that's good. That's what I would have told her. I love it. Cause that's the thing. I mean, I would, whenever somebody asks me questions about like, you know, changing the past, I mean, the past is the past for a reason. I mean, it has made you who you are and you wouldn't be so awesome at doing all this research if you didn't have that kind of intensity side to you. But that's similar to what I think I would say. Like, it's not that serious. Like it's not, I mean, everything's serious and it's also not that serious. Like, I just think I was, I was, I still am. I don't know. Maybe I still need to keep telling myself (laughs) all of these things. Uh, Anyway. The good news is we don't have to go back to tell the 16-year-old self, who, by the way, the brain wiring of my 16-year-old self would have rolled their eyes at that advice. But but we can tell ourselves that now, right? Yeah. It really is. You're a totally different creature by the time you get to the age where we're, the stage of life that we're in. But the thread of character that was always you right from mm-hmm. your whole life was still there so right. you well, can it's funny. even at my like high school reunion I kind of want to be like and not so much in college but in in high school like I kind of want to be like wait so who was I because I don't really know what the heck was going on there and I, people have said that I'm similar but I'm also so different and I'm sure that's true of most of us but it's like this is a group of people who had that snapshot of you and probably saw it more clearly than I did you know? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're carrying around that adolescent brain. So part of it is that they probably, you know, have some view of you that is their version. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can see that in adolescence, you're just, you're beginning to formulate a sense of who you are, but ironically in adolescence, you're very sure that this is who you are. Mm -hmm. So the tattoo age is what, 18? Yes. Yes. Exactly. Like, don't get the Pokemon tattoo. That's a bad idea. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> totally. Oh my gosh. Well, before we go, I have to say we are doing this video, and I'm in love with your color ordered book. Oh my coordinated books. So beautiful. Yes. Oh, you, it's so funny. You're the only person to have noticed that here. Oh my gosh. Unobstructed Order view. in an unruly world. I love it. It's. Beautiful. I know. That's my little ode to like. I can't control anything in life except that my books are in rainbow color. Very happy. I appreciate that very much. Very Um, good. Well, I love talking to you and it was fun for me to see you too. And I I will let you know when this comes out. Great. To do it more. We need our talk show. Basically, this is the next step forward in that process. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Family Brain. I love talking to Sarah Sarkis and learning from her about teens and brain development. And I personally felt encouraged by her message and some of her insights around parenting teens. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I would love it if you would share it with people you know who might benefit from it also. I feel like a lot of the parenting that goes on around teen years and early adulthood can be pretty isolating. And to me, it's it's helpful to talk to other people and to hear from other people and to sort of know that a lot of what we are dealing with as parents or as teens is usually pretty typical behaviors that, as Sarah says, is part of the recipe. 
I love that line. And it just sort of helps normalize things and make you not feel like you're in it alone. So thanks for listening and share this episode with a friend. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.